I think the white space for me was from a personality standpoint. Uh, there's certainly three, four, five major kind of sports business publications that I would say that uh, people within the profession read. But from a personality standpoint, one of the only other people really is Darren Robelt, right? And he's done it really, really well for a long time. But from a younger generation, I just thought there was an area to attack. So that was kind of where I saw the white space. But yeah, it just shows, right? Like there's kind of different avenues and different ways to think about a bunch of different stuff, whether it's publications versus personalities and vice versa. Welcome into the Miami Herbert Huddle. It's the podcast all about the business of sports, and I'm Rich Robinson. On the show today, we bring you a conversation with Joe Pompliano, a sports media entrepreneur and investor who's made a big splash over the past year with his email newsletter, Huddle Up. Joe's grown his Twitter following to 270,000 followers and has converted a large percentage of those into subscribers to his daily email. He's done it by understanding the way Twitter works better than almost anyone else and by telling compelling stories about the sports industry. So, what is he? Is he the next Darren Rovell or something else entirely? And what does his business say about the power of viral content and fresh faces in the sports media business? Here's our conversation. Tell me about how this thing started. I mean, I, I know you were at J.P. Morgan when, when you started kind of moonlighting doing the podcast, uh, the uh, newsletter. Is that how it started? Uh, last July, I guess it was at this point, so almost a year I was at JP Morgan. I had previously worked at Octagon Sports Agency, another financial services firm, and then JP Morgan for uh, maybe two or three years at this point. And really what it came down to was just figuring out what I wanted to do long-term. And I think a big portion of that for me was like, I was on the sales and trading desk on the fixing income side and at JP Morgan. There's guys 40, 50, 60 years old doing kind of similar things that I was doing at the time. So it was like, okay, do you want to rise up the ranks and keep doing this and, and do kind of similar work for the next 30 years? And uh, while the answer may be yes for some people, it was a no for me personally. So I just figured out kind of what I wanted to do, which was get back on the sports side of it, combine not only the sports agency side that I had previously at Octagon, but with the business side that I had, you know, ventured into as I got older and, and enjoyed a little more. So I started writing uh, about sports business on the newsletter. And most people don't actually know this, but the newsletter actually started out as it was just me sending out articles that I thought were interesting, right? So just me kind of collecting together one or two articles that I thought were cool, giving a little background and then letting people read them. And it stayed that way for two, three weeks, but I quickly realized that people wanted something more. Uh, so I started writing kind of personal opinion pieces and things like that. So it's gone really well. Like I said, it's been 11 or 12 months now. The newsletter has 45, 50,000 subscribers. And then I started tweeting at the same time. And that's, that's kind of been the platform that I've leveraged to drive everyone to uh, the newsletter. So look, I've enjoyed it. I think it's it's completely different than JP Morgan. I think that I probably, I, I always laugh that I, I probably work more hours now than I did when I was there, which is kind of hard to believe for um, a job on Wall Street that I think people, most people think is is uh, somewhat demanding, but it's, uh, it's different working for yourself. It's fun. It's rewarding and all those type of things. So I've certainly uh, enjoyed it. So you did all this in a year time. I mean, you had no Twitter following. Now you've got what, over 200,000 followers roughly or more than that? Yep. Yeah. 200 and uh, 265, I think. Now. And that's in the last month, you've gone another 65,000, it sounds like. So it's kind of an exponential thing at the moment. It, sound, it seems as though. How, how were you able to hack that? My older brother, Anthony, he has, when I started, he had a Twitter audience of probably 250 to 300. Um, to 300,000. So I think uh, the way I thought about it was, look, you need two really big, two really important things to grow a Twitter audience. And one is really good content. And then the second is distribution and they work hand in hand. You can't 
do it without one or the other. So I knew I kind of already had an advantage on the distribution side, right? I come with 250,000 followers that could retweet tweets, interact with them, all that type of stuff. Try to be very upfront and clear about that advantage. But then the second part is the content, right? And you have to produce good content consistently. So the daily newsletter is part of that. And then secondly, it was just kind of producing, you know, 10, 15 tweets a day, keeping people informed, finding content that people enjoyed that wasn't produced by all of the mainstream outlets and stuff like that. So I think through a combination of both was super helpful. And then I think the biggest hack, if you want to call it, which I think everyone kind of uh, realized eventually was Twitter threads. I, it really just started out as just kind of a, an experiment where I took my newsletter one day and I just put it in a thread format. It was eight or nine tweets long and I sent it out. And it was basically just a way to engage people that followed me on Twitter, but not the newsletter and say, Hey, look, if you enjoyed this thread, it's essentially just today's newsletter. You should sign up because you're going to get this every day. But what I found was the first one got two or 300 likes, which was more than I was getting at the time. Then one got 20,000 likes and I got two or 3,000 signups at a time. And I was like, holy, this is really the best way to grow the newsletter and my Twitter. So I transformed it from kind of just newsletter topics to uh, kind of going out and searching for, for content. Told people, hey, look, here's a 910 tweet, cool story. If you enjoyed this one, follow me to sign up for the newsletter. So I think once I figured out that was kind of the best approach uh, for me personally to get not only followers, but people down to the newsletter, I just doubled down on it. So I was doing, you know, four to five a week for six months straight. And that's really how I went from zero to 100 or 150,000 followers. And that's really, you know, if you look at the newsletter, 90% of the people uh, probably come from Twitter. And then the other We'll call it eight to 10%, whatever doesn't kind of leak in from alternative sites come from word of mouth. So from a platform perspective, Twitter has been uh, by far and away the biggest source from not only, you know, the, the on-platform stuff on Twitter, but building the newsletter also. And then obviously you think uh, your brother probably helped at the beginning too, able to help, able to leverage his distribution a little bit to, to help you get out there a little bit as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Look, I think like I like I just mentioned, there's two things you need, right? You need good content distribution. And some people find distribution in other ways. Uh, you'll see on Twitter, there's a lot of people that kind of all interact with each other. They retweet each other's tweets. They like each other's tweets. They're all commenting on each other's tweets. And they're doing it for a specific purpose, right? They're literally in group chats and they're sending each other's tweets and saying, hey, go retweet this, right? Because everyone knows you need good content and you need distribution. Everyone will find a way eventually to do it. Some people will just DM their tweets to big accounts. Some people will leverage their friends and do it to each other. My advantage was, you know, the, the, the built-in distribution there. But I will say as, as my account has gotten bigger and my brothers, it's been fun to see like kind of leveraging each other's now, right? Where you, you kind of see that network effect of people coming in and saying, Hey, I didn't know who he was, or, you know, I didn't see your account before or whatever. And there's, there's clearly a, uh, some correlation, but then I think that there's certainly people that have, uh, discovered kind of both of us at the same time. So if you're the sports guy, then how would you describe your brother's content output? Yeah. He focuses on uh, financial services, mostly crypto. Would you consider yourself trying to kind of emulate the Darren Rovell model a little bit? Are you kind of in that same space or? Yeah. So I think uh, the, the way I think about it and why I started doing it was um, Darren is a, is a good friend of mine. He's obviously done really well for not only himself, but kind of his, um, his business and his personal image and everything like that. And everyone has their own personal opinion, but he was really the first person that took it from a personality perspective in sports business. And I think part of my decision to do it was, it was one, two things I really enjoyed the sports and the business angle. And then two, I thought that there was a really kind of a white space from a personality perspective for a younger generation, right? So Darren's done it for a really long time. His audience certainly overlaps to some degree, but I like to think that it, 
it's it, sure it's it overlaps on kind of the sports business side, but it's different types of content. It's a different way of approaching it. It's different styles and all that type of stuff. Credit to Darren. He's been extremely helpful in, in me getting started and he's become a good friend throughout the process. Uh, but yeah, I, I certainly think that we kind of cover similar topics, but in different kind of personalities and different styles. And would you consider yourself a journalist? Uh, not necessarily. No, I think journalists do, uh, to be honest, much harder work than me to some degree, right? Which is, um, I leverage a lot of their work and I'm quick to credit them on a lot of things because I think that they do difficult work with chasing stories and writing pieces and doing all that type of stuff. So I see myself as someone kind of, I don't break news necessarily unless it's you know broken by someone else. I don't chase sources. I don't get exclusives. I don't do all this type of stuff unless someone hits me up directly to do this. In terms of monetization, really can't monet. I mean, you could, but it's difficult to monetize on Twitter. So that's where Substack comes in, right? That's how you, that's how you monetize this audience that you're able to gather. How does a Substack model work with you? So Substack has two options. You can either go paid or free. I chose to go free and uh, I monetized it through advertisements. Did you monetize from day one? Did it take a while to build enough audience to attract advertisers? Kind of what was that trajectory like? Yeah. So for me, uh, it took probably a few months, uh, but my main goal was basically just to start doing it full-time because I knew if I was able to do it full-time that I would be able to really start to grow it in a meaningful way. So as soon as I got past, uh, I forget the exact subscriber number, but it was two, three months in, I basically said, Hey, look, I'm going to go try to find an exclusive advertiser where they get everything digitally, right? So newsletter I was doing sponsored tweets by them and all that type of stuff. So it was just the quickest way from zero to kind of quitting the job. So I was able to do that, I think in September after starting in July. So yeah, a few months in and that helped tremendously, obviously. Uh, and then that deal ran up in, in January. Now I, I do a whole host of, you know, five to six different advertisers at a time, which are, are monetized through yeah newsletter ads. And these are, and I, you know, you see these in there largely, you know, you have a photo on the top sponsored by, and then on the bottom, you've got a little bit of text and, you know, links to them, but that's kind of the extent of it, right? These are sort of stagnant, you know, photo and, and some text ads. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's certainly one way to think about it, but there's, there's a lot more that goes into it also because uh, there's, there's tweets, there's threads, there's uh, talking about their products on podcasts. I've done interviews with executives and most of them online. Um, there's guest posts, there's detailed kind of exclusive posts on them. So there's, there's a bunch of other things that go into it. Uh, but yes, from, a, from an aesthetic standpoint, when you go onto the newsletter, they have your typical, what you would find in any other newsletter really, which is uh, just kind of a banner ad or, or a description of what they do and an offer to go sign up. Gotcha. And so that's been, you, you were able to find advertisers pretty early on in the process. So what does that say about the maturation of Substack and, and Twitter? Because I bet you five Substack didn't exist five years ago, but if you were just a Twitter brand with a with a uh, with a uh, online following five years ago, probably would have been a challenge to to get advertisers to take you seriously. I think it depends. I think really like ad based businesses have shown anyone with an audience is able to really monetize it. Certainly, Substack has helped from kind of building that audience in a newsletter capacity. But look, there's plenty of other people that think that maybe there's other platforms that are better from monetizing from an ad perspective. I've used Substack because I think that the ability to create an account and send a newsletter out in five minutes and not worry about anything else is super helpful. And it's been tremendously helpful for me personally, but there's, there's certainly other, uh, other services that have offered, you know, have been around for five years plus. So I think it's been shown over time, like as long as you have an audience, there'll be ways to monetize it, whether it's on newsletters or video on YouTube and other places. But yeah, Substack is certainly kind of the, the newer kid on the block that has helped scale kind of newsletter offerings in general. Explain the newsletter to somebody who maybe hasn't seen it. You know, what's in the newsletter? What's the format, the layout? What do you 
What's the secret sauce? So it's just one topic a day. It's it's Monday through Friday. It usually goes out between nine to nine thirty, and really it could be anything. It's just the money and business behind sports is generally how I phrase it. Which is you know we could be talking about player contracts one day. We could be talking about uh, league sponsorships or TV rights. You know today was on the NCAA and, and the status of amateurism and stuff like that. So it's really anything that involves the money behind sports, and it involves professionals, amateurs, U.S., Europe, etc. It could be anywhere. Uh, so there's there's not necessarily a target niche, but it's for people that enjoy you know the, the the details of the business side of sports, right? So the people that ask themselves, hey, why does ESPN have this game? How much is the Super Bowl halftime show cost? Why is this player getting paid X? How much of the salary cap is that, right? So uh, I think it's for kind of the way I typically describe it is just a working professional that enjoys the business side of sports. Just to give us a rough idea, the amount of money you're making now, is it roughly what you were making at JP Morgan when you left or is it still kind of a work in progress or how, how do you look at it? Uh, it's growing, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's more than I made there, but yeah, it's still growing. And, and every day it's, uh, you know, trying to add more subscribers, get more advertisers and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly been, um, good from that perspective. And is it a one man operation? Do you have like a, are you growing a team out around you? My brother and I, we, we kind of, from the outside looking in, you wouldn't see that they're kind of connected in any way. He does a financial news one. I do a sports business. His wife does kind of profiles on successful people and stuff like that. But we have a couple uh, people that work for us in, in various degrees and kind of some video help and stuff like that. But on the, uh, on the operational side, yeah, like uh, it's very, very slim. It sounds like you guys are building a media company then, basically. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it, everything's a media company in one form or fashion, but you've got three different brands that are in three different verticals. You know, you're working together and, and sharing insights. I mean, that sounds like a media company in the making, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's certainly one way to look at it. And I think you're right. Like media companies are very blurred these days and the, the, the definition of it can really mean anything. And in the traditional sense, probably not, but in the, the kind of the sense of today, then yes, certainly. I think that it, it just goes back to having the audience, right. And having people sign up for the newsletters and distributing content, not only on Twitter, but on the newsletter and video and other types of kind of mediums. Uh, but yeah, look, I think that whenever you have that kind of grasp in that audience, it's certainly considered a media company. So what's the goal then? What are you trying to achieve? Uh, so I think most of it comes down to like the, the content side is a piece of it, but really on the other side, a lot of what we look at is just the investing side. And I think one of our core beliefs early on was building an audience to, uh, as an advantage when it comes to investing. So one of our kind of the things we've always thought for a long time now is just the ability, the greatest investors in the future will be the ones that have an audience and distribution. And not only does that help from kind of a publicity standpoint, but it not only it helps you see deal flow and it helps you go to founders and say, Hey, look, when you find product market fit, we'll come in and we'll help you create a meaningful inflection point in the sales of your business and stuff like that, right? Just, just an audience is helpful in a varying amount of degrees, uh, but especially from an investing standpoint. So part of what we do is we spend a lot of our time looking at different investment opportunities and then the content piece overlays on top of that. Uh, I would say that the content piece, I like to think that it only takes 60% of our time, but maybe it takes 75 or 80, right? It just depends on kind of what's going on, but it's certainly just kind of part of the puzzle in when you look at the whole picture. So are you investing in sports businesses then? Yes, alongside uh, varying other companies within technology, finance, all of those. And you've found some of these investments through your newsletter. People have reached out to you and, and things like that. Is that how you found some of these? So certainly some of them, yes, have come through kind of relationships I've built through the newsletter. And then some of them are just connections I've made throughout kind of the industry. Me and my brother do it together. So he brings a lot of value from his audience and his kind of experience and, and perspective. Uh, so yeah, I mean, look, the deals come from a, a varying degree of places. Can you give us some examples of some of the sports businesses that you've invested with and 
how that's looking? Yeah, the I mean, you can go on uh, on on pumpinvestments.com. It has a list of kind of everything that we've done. But the most recent one, we just invested in uh, Collectible, the fractional share investment platform for uh, sports memorabilia and collectibles. So that's a cool one. They were they were um, someone I've worked with in the past. Loved the business. Loved kind of the the app and their distribution, all that type of stuff. Right. I just thought it was a a really scalable solution to um, a growing industry. So that's one that we've worked with. Golden Auctions is another one that we've worked with uh, kind of within that same space, just really based on our thesis that this is a growing spot in sports business, the collectibles and memorabilia uh, industry. But yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's plenty more. So there's, uh, you, people can check it out on pumpinvestments.com. We'll take a quick break from our conversation with Joe Pompliano for this word from the Miami Herbert Business School. The only constant in life is change. Change is a dynamic force that moves through everything, our personal lives, our professions, and the roiling markets of the world economy. How we adapt to this change and how we reinvent ourselves in response will define us, especially when that change produces a trial and the things required of us are so tough. Our city of Miami has shown resilience in the face of many trials and has used those moments to propel profound transformation. To harness the forces of transformation, we need to build resilient leaders who have the knowledge and courage to change everything. Here at the Miami Herbert Business School, we're preparing the next generation of leaders for the bright future that will lie ahead once this trial is passed. We're prepared to confront the unknown. And we're here to help you build your future. If you want more from our conversation or wish to see it in video form, you can find it on the Miami Herbert Business School YouTube channel. You can also watch past episodes from important figures in the sports world like Vladimir Klitschko, David Sampson, and Kim Stone. Just type in Miami Herbert Business School into the YouTube search bar and you'll find it. Interested in getting your MBA? Well, visit herbert.miami.edu to learn more about the various degree programs that Miami Herbert offers. That's H-E-R-B-E-R-T dot M-I-A-M-I dot E-D-U to learn more. Now, back to our conversation. What's been the, what was the lar- the most successful piece of content that you produced? And I guess the way to look at that, you can tell us, but the metrics that you have, what's the single most successful um, piece of content that you've done? And then kind of explain why that was. Uh, so I wrote a, an article in a Twitter thread um, on a sports business story that was a gambler in Europe that... Um, he, he ran a couple of successful gambling businesses. He started in finance, started gambling his own personal money on sports and, and developed some analytical models that uh, basically were designed to help him find an edge when it came to sports gambling. Uh, made a bunch of money doing that, starting a company, all that type of stuff. Purchased his childhood team in England uh, and they actually just joined the Premier League. So he brought them up from the fourth division to the Premier League, which as, uh, as most uh, fans know, that brings a lot of money that, along with it, right? So you get about depending on how long you stay, it could be anywhere from 250 to $500 million or more. So he made a bunch of money doing it. And I did a, a post on it uh, and it was shared a lot. It was liked a lot uh, and it received really good feedback on Substack. So I shared it as a Twitter thread uh, and I've gotten Twitter threads that had 20 or 40,000 likes, which is um, incredible from a, 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 you know, a platform perspective, but this one got 130,000 or 135,000. So by far and away, kind of the most shareable uh, and viral tweet that I'd had. And that resulted in, you know, thousands of, of Twitter followers and thousands of subscribers. So great from kind of a growth perspective also. We see companies like DraftKings, for example, 
that are major, major companies with huge investors that are now purchasing media companies for the same reason you're talking about, because they want that distribution. You know, they just bought the Dan Lebetard show, which is based here in Miami, $50 million over three years. They didn't buy it, but they've invested in it basically for three years, exclusive uh, advertising partner with them for that reason. They wanted that, that they wanted those, uh, you know, that, those connections. You're doing it from a different perspective. You're not necessarily trying to get people to gamble. You're trying to get them to, you know, know who you are. And, and uh, I'm not quite clear, maybe try to give you guys money for your investment fund. Is that kind of the, the goal or not necessarily? You're just using that in your pitches to some of these investors or how it works that you have this with you. Is that kind of the value add? I wasn't quite clear about that. Uh, well, for, for, from no, you, we're, your... we're certainly not. We're certainly not asking them for money. No, that's that's incorrect. But um, not, yeah, not I think the it's... subscribers. But I mean, maybe you're trying to raise money yourself for your fund. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, so we have an angel list uh, fund, but it's uh, it's mostly made up of uh, accredited investors and stuff like that. So the, the media business is kind of completely separate. It's a media business, like you mentioned, in the traditional sense where you're uh, kind of building an audience and distributing them content and whether you're monetizing it through subscriptions or ads, whatever. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, the investment part plays a piece in that from working with founders and that's why you're valuable, right? Why should you go with me over someone else? Why should I get access to this deal over this professional athlete? Or why should, you know, it... it it, it really just uh, depends on the specific deal. But I think having that content business is extremely helpful when it comes to investing. Yes. The economics of sports is largely driven. Tell me if you disagree, largely driven by media. That's kind of the core of it, at least for professional sports and college athletics, as we're seeing with the NCAA for, for the, uh, for football, especially and basketball. It's kind of give me a perspective on that. I mean, how central to sports is media. Oh, it's the heart of it, right? I think uh, when you look at what you were just mentioning about professional sports, the major leagues in the U.S., uh, you know, the NFL gets paid $10 billion a year for their broadcasting rights. NBA is at like 2.3 or 2.5, so a massive amount. The MLS is even going to be up probably closer to 500 million by the time this next deal is done. So it really just depends on the sport, but it's massive, right? That's where I think everyone thinks uh, when they talk about league-wide revenues, even the average sports fan knows, hey, look, media drives most of this stuff from a TV perspective. So uh, it's important. But not even even outside of just kind of uh, watching the games and broadcasting the games on TV, interviewing players beforehand, producing the content afterwards. Even a company like uh, one of my favorite examples is House of Highlights on Instagram, right? 25 million followers on Instagram, billions of views a month, whatever, uh, on, uh, across platforms. And just the amount of content and eyeballs they're allowed, to, they're able to drive to certain properties, sports, their own, professional leagues, whatever it is, amateur, is incredible. And I think that's like kind of what builds up everything. Uh, so, so whether it's broadcasting rights or social media or you know journalism or stuff like that, it certainly all plays an important role. Well, let's talk about House of Highlights for a second since you mentioned them. I mean, I believe that guy was actually, I think he was in South Florida, I think. I think he was a young guy somewhere in Florida, maybe not South Florida, but he was from here, I believe. And basically just started taking clips of games that he didn't have any legal right to use, by the way. Could, they could have taken him down probably all the time. They didn't do it. He was able to build this huge following. You wonder if he did it starting today, probably House of Highlights couldn't be created today because of the copyright enforcement and all these other things that exist. So, um, I mean, how do you how do you look at House of Highlights and, and, and what's the lesson from them, do you think? Well, so I, it's actually interesting because uh, so 
with NBA, those same laws existed. He just, uh, there's actually a famous quote that I've shared a couple of times by Adam Silver on it, which is he was, I forget his exact role, but he was one or two steps down from being commissioner of the NBA at the time. This was 2014 or something like that, 2015. And basically all of the NBA's clips were getting shared on YouTube. And the NBA lawyers recommended that they start suing YouTube and all these other places for sharing their clips without consent and all this stuff. And Adam Silver was essentially like, no, that's a terrible idea. And they're like, why, whatever, like it's illegal. They shouldn't be doing this. And he was like, well, look, YouTube's growing. It's going to be the biggest platform in the world video wise for younger generations of fans coming up. If we're not on there, then we don't exist to these young fans. Right. So maybe there's a better solution of figuring out a way to allow them to put up the content, but his gut instinct was, hey, look, we're not going to sue them and take this stuff down because it's imperative that the new generation of fans see this. And if you compare that to the MLB's approach, which John Boy is famous, he has John Boy Media now, and he started out as kind of just a blogger for the Yankees and was tweeting out clips and stuff like this. And he was the first guy to really do it on the MLB side because they were they used to take down every clip. They wouldn't allow you to post certain things. They didn't want any of their content moving outside of their channels. Opposite approach of what, uh, what Adam Silver was doing. And the MLB, their average fan now is almost 60 years old, right? And it used to be 45, then it was 50, now it's almost 60. So when you look at it from the NBA versus MLB perspective, two completely different approaches, two completely different results. And there's a bunch of different other things that went into it and, and a bunch of other reasons probably why, but that's certainly something that sticks kind of in the top of my mind of the approach they've taken on the media side and the results that they've seen because of it. If, uh, if the MLB said, hey, you know what? We're going to let these guys do it today. I wonder if it could work on Instagram because it's changed so much in those five, six years. I mean, House of Highlights kind of came out at the perfect moment, seems to me anyway, for, for it to grow. Even the algorithms ha have changed in such a way, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe that's uh, beyond your pay grade. But what is your perspective on that? I mean, is House of Highlights a kind of a unique thing or could other brands, if you wanted to today as a young kid, if you wanted to kind of try to replicate that in a different sport, you think you could be successful? Well, I think it depends, right? Like you don't want to go up against someone who's already doing it really well and has built that audience. I think what House of Highlights did really well was realize that there was no one doing this, right? And finding white space and going and attacking it. And it's certainly possible. Like if you look at TikTok, that wasn't even a platform in the US that was popular two, three years ago, right? And there's people with millions and millions of views and producing content and making millions of dollars off sponsorships on top of it, right? So uh, I wouldn't say that these platforms have shut off and it's not possible and stuff like that. It's just finding the right areas. And what House of Highlights did really well was People were posting clips at the time. The problem wasn't that they were posting highlight clips. Uh, they were they couldn't find the guy's name is Omar Omar Raja, and now he works for ESPN and he started uh, House of Highlights. And what he said was, I was in South Florida and the Miami Heat. LeBron James was there at the time. He was heading back to Cleveland. And me and my friends were talking about all these uh, these funny conversations or these funny moments that happened off the court. So you know, the highlights are one thing, but off the court where they did the, uh, you know, moments between LeBron and Dwayne Wade on the bench, maybe them out at dinner or whatever it was like clips that he had seen before, but he couldn't find anywhere. So he searched on YouTube, couldn't find him searching all these other places, couldn't find him. So his, if you look at house of highlights now, it's interesting actually, because a lot of their clips aren't necessarily highlight based They're They're certainly, uh, you know, the game winning jump shot and stuff like that, but there's you know, some guy doing a crazy stunt in his backyard, right? There's uh, videos like that and, and some guy doing a workout in the gym or whatever it is, right? There, there's a bunch of different stuff, but it was really just something that no one was doing at the time and, and collecting all those videos and sharing them. So I think that's why his account blew up so quickly. Um, but yeah, I think it's just about finding the white space and figuring out what people aren't doing or aren't trying or aren't attacking and then going after that. Really appreciate your time. I think it's uh, really interesting what you've done. And I mean, have you done the same thing you think finding the white space? I mean, some would argue there was a lot of sports business reporting, maybe not as much, but you had some people you were going up against, you know, uh, as we talked about earlier, big name people who, who report on these things. And yet you were still able to to grow a, 
you know, a, a, a still fast growing company. Yeah, I think it depends. I think the white space for me was from a personality standpoint, right? So there's there's plenty of, uh, there's certainly three, four, five major kind of sports business publications that I would say that uh, people within the profession read. But from a personality standpoint, um, one of the only other people really is Darren Robel, right? And he's done it really, really well for a long time. Uh, but from a younger generation, I just thought there was an area to attack. So that was kind of where I saw the white space. Um, but yeah, it just shows, right? Like there's, kind of different avenues and different ways to think about a bunch of different stuff, whether it's publications versus personalities and vice versa. And how many times has Barstool called you to try to, uh, to uh, get you to work with them? <laughs> I, uh, th- there has been Barstool aside, there has been, uh, there's been a few people that have, have brought up conversations like that. And uh, they're certainly um, entertaining and, and flattering to some degree. But the one thing I, I typically come back to on them is that like I mentioned before, like it's just, there's there's a kind of a joy and a fun uh, nature of building the business yourself and doing these certain things. So it's, uh, it's not something I'm going to give up at the time. Well, that's all we have for this episode of the Herbert Huddle. Thanks to Joe Pompliano of Huddle Up for being on the show. There's a lot of huddling going on in this episode. If you want more from the show or want to see our great guests on screen, you can find it on the Miami Herbert YouTube channel. New episodes of the Miami Herbert Huddle are uploaded every other Thursday, so be sure to subscribe to our feed on your favorite podcast app in order to get it in the future. There's going to be some pretty great conversations coming up in the future as well. So be sure to rate and even give us a review of the show if you have a few seconds. The producer of the Herbert Huddle is Marlene Liebisch. Special thanks to Dean John Quelch and Vice Deans Henrik Kronkvist and DJ Nanda. Additional production support is provided by Rise News Brand Studio. I'm Rich Robinson, and we'll see you next time in the Herbert Huddle.